Every year on the Sunday before Ash Wednesday, we read the story that Stephanie read for us a moment ago, the story of Jesus Christ's transfiguration. We call this day Transfiguration Sunday as we commemorate that event. Sometime in the Middle Ages, that word transfiguration entered into the English language as a loan word from Latin. But there are times when I wish that instead of borrowing the word from Latin, those early English speakers would have instead stuck with the Greek that was there in the text already. That's because in the original Greek of this story, Jesus goes through a metamorphose. You might be able to hear it in the background. He goes through a metamorphosis. Usually when we use that particular word in English, we're talking about caterpillars turning into butterflies, which I actually think is a pretty good analogy for thinking about this scene. Jesus, the poor, disheveled, itinerant preacher who'd been tracing all around Galilee, is suddenly transformed. One moment he's drab, probably a bit dirty at the end of a long day. And the next he's beautiful. His skin shines, his clothes become bright white, whiter even than white, Mark says. It's dazzling to the disciples. And suddenly, Peter, James, and John, who are there with him, are terrified. Faced with the reality that Jesus is more than a great teacher, more than a wondrous healer, more even than the Messiah of Israel, alongside these things, they see now that he is also God. This is my son, the beloved. The voice booms from the heavens. Listen to him. But this, you see, this transfiguration, this, this metamorphosis, this revelation of Jesus' glory, this is actually only part of the story, of what happened up on the mountain that night. Because alongside Peter, James, John, and Jesus, two other figures appear on stage, Moses and Elijah. Mark tells us that the two Old Testament heroes are there having a conversation with Jesus, but he doesn't tell us why. He doesn't tell us what exactly they're talking about. Over the years, a number of different possibilities have been put forward. A popular one is that the presence of Moses and Elijah as representatives of Jewish law and prophecy, 
illustrates how Jesus' Messiahship is deeply rooted within the faith of the Old Testament. A second possible explanation draws on the fact that at that time in history, both Moses and Elijah were expected to return to earth before the coming of the Messiah. And so because of this, their appearance alongside the transfigured Christ reveals to the disciples that the time has in fact come. But, this morning, in this sermon, I want to put forward in front of all of you another possibility. Because you see, there is something else that links Moses and Elijah as well. Something that Jesus himself will soon know for himself. Both of these men know what it is to fear for their lives. Moses was wanted as a murderer in Egypt. That's why he was hiding out in the wilderness when God came to him in the burning bush and told him that he had to go back. Elijah, too, hid in the wilderness for a time. He was the only survivor of Queen Jezebel's purges of the prophets of the Lord. And that's only because she didn't know where to find him. Both of these men were hunted as enemies of the state. Both fled out into the wilderness in order to save themselves. Both of them know what it is to fear for their lives. Therefore, both of them are perfect conversation partners for Jesus. As he makes his way towards Jerusalem, arrest, and crucifixion. Now, don't be too quick to dismiss this possibility, to move past the possibility that Jesus Christ was afraid to face these things. Remember, this scene comes right on the heels of him telling his disciples that he would soon be rejected, suffer, and die. Remember that after he says that, Peter pulls him aside and tells him to stop talking like that. And that is when Jesus wheels on him, rebukes Peter, and calls him Satan. The tempter. It's an odd response. Too strong for the moment. There's too much emotion in it. Unless, that is, Peter has just brought something up that was already weighing on Jesus' mind. Something that he had already thought about all too much. Something that might have already begun to tempt him. Something that will again come up on the night of his betrayal. When Jesus prays to the Father above and asks that he be spared the task that's before him. If this is why, Jesus, uh, why Moses and Elijah appear, 
If this is what they're talking with Jesus about up on the mountain, then it would seem like this is an odd moment for that conversation. Right? I mean, we have just seen Jesus transfigured. We've just seen him shine with divine glory. We've just heard the voice of the Father cry out from heaven and claim him as his son. And yet there in the same scene on the same mountain, we see him huddled with Moses and Elijah having one of the single most human conversations that one could possibly have. I'm scared of what I'm facing. And I don't know what to do. To our minds, the two things don't really go together, do they? In the moment of his acclamation, resplendent in white, shining with heavenly glory, why would he be thinking about death? As God's beloved son, what would it even mean for him to be afraid? And yet here they are, together. He is exalted, but he is vulnerable. He is powerful, but he is afraid. He is God. But at the very same time, he is 100% human as well. Very few writers in the New Testament explore this dual reality like the author of the letter to the Hebrews. Just a moment ago, Stephanie read a section of that for us here this morning. Jesus, we are told, is crowned with glory and honor. Jesus has had the entirety of the creation placed under his feet. Jesus, the one for whom and by whom all things exist, that same Jesus, we are told, has suffered and been tested. In other words, the writer writes, Jesus has been made like us in every single respect. In every respect. Even the painful ones. Or perhaps especially the painful ones. Two Saturdays ago, I was given the honor of preaching Sid Highsmith's funeral. Sid, as many of you well know, was a lovely man. And the quality of his character was demonstrated by the ways that his two nephews and their families cared for him through his later years and then came together to celebrate his life at his passing. It's a striking thing to see. Perhaps the only thing that was more striking 
on that Saturday was their choice of scripture for their uncle's service. Psalm 150. It's a beautiful choice. The 150th Psalm is this raucous song of praise to the Lord. Surprising, perhaps, as a choice for a funeral. And yet at the same time, perfectly fitting for a service that bears witness to the promise and hope of resurrection. And so on that day, as we read Psalm 150, and as we reflected on the joy and the hope that is present in that text, we who were there allowed it to teach us not just how to reflect on why we were there and what we were doing, but indeed to teach us how to pray to God. For millennia now, that's what people of faith have done. They have turned to the Psalms and they have read them and they have allowed the words of the psalmist to teach them how to pray, how to go before their Lord and talk. But if you've ever spent any time in the Psalms, then you know that not all of them are as joyous as Psalm 150. There are psalms that are sad, psalms that are angry. There are psalms that rage at injustices in the world. There are psalms that cry out to God for revenge. There are psalms that find the psalmist in the deepest depths of confusion or of despair. The psalms, in other words are not always nice. They run the entire gamut of human experience and human emotion, and as they do so, they teach us that it is okay to be honest with God. And it's even okay to be honest with ourselves about those very things that we might otherwise want to keep hidden. Things like our faults or our failures. Things like our sorrows or our fears. The Psalms are bracingly honest about what it is like to be a person. The highest highs of life and the absolute lowest of lows. But after all, why not? Why not go to the Lord with the best of life and the worst of life together? Why not give voice to our struggles just as we give voice to our triumphs? Why not cry out to God for help with the same amount of volume that we cry out to God with praise? There's no reason not to. Because God already knows. 
Because Jesus already knows. The one who hears our prayers is the same one who came down here and walked amongst us. If we say that we are in pain, he already knows what it is to hurt. If we say that we are afraid, he already knows what it means to fear. If we say that we don't know what's going to happen next or we don't feel like we are able to keep going on, he already knows what it feels like to sweat blood in anticipation of what tomorrow might bring. My friends, there is not a single thing that we can bring before the Lord that will shock or surprise or scandalize or offend. And if you don't believe me, open your Bible. Go to the Psalms. See what all is prayed for in there. Go and learn how to pray like that. And if you want to know why we are able to pray like that, then just look at the two texts that we read here today. Because the one that we cry out to, the one that we pray to, the one whom we rely on for salvation and for succor and hope and all good things in life, My friends, whatever you need to lay before him, he knows. He already knows. Because he loves us. Thanks be to God. Amen. If you hear nothing else I say today, hear this. God loves you. And whatever burden that you are carrying around with you, whatever burdens or concerns, cares, worries, whatever it is that you have brought with you here today, you can lay them before him. Honestly. Because he loves you. Now's the time in our service when we typically invite people to respond to that love. If you would like to respond to that love, good. If you would like to join this church and help us share that love with people all around us, remind ourselves of it when we need it, good. But if nothing else, leave this place knowing that you are loved. And now let us stand as we are able and sing.